Okay, so we we ended with you talking about that you had just seven stepped, and aftercare was next. Can you explain yeah. what aftercare was? Aftercare was a six month um, segment of time that you had to go through uh, just to adjust to getting used to life outside of the program uh-huh. and not relying on the group as much anymore for dealing with your problems. For the first three months, you had to attend twice a week. Okay. The seven step wraps that they had. Okay. Tuesdays and Saturday evenings. And then after three months, you only had to attend one meeting a week. Okay. And if you were out of town, which I thought this was stupid, if you were out of town, you only had to attend one meeting a month for the whole six months. Okay. So if you were from Michigan and you seven step, then you'd go home to Michigan and just come down to Cincinnati once a month for a seven right. step wrap. And that was all that was required. Were they making you guys do AA meetings too, or no, was that later? Because when later. I was a seven stepper, you had to do AA yeah, meetings too. No, that wasn't required. It was not simply yet. the, the okay. aftercare. And they called that group the Seven Step Society. Okay. So it even had a cultish type name to it. Uh huh. Was, was there a crazy rule or two? or? Um, like, I don't remember. I remember. I remember there not being a lot of rules that we had to follow after we had seven stepped. That's what I remembered. Were you allowed to date? No, you could not date until you were six months seven stepped, and you still had to write moral inventories every night. Okay. Th- yeah, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So you're a seven stepper, <clears throat> and they're they're also led by seven step officers who are basically seven steppers who have been seven step for three months or more who were uh-huh. elected by the people in the seven okay. step society. Okay. Um, We'll get to that. I, I kind of, maybe the order isn't perfect, but yeah. we'll come back to that. Okay. Um, did you have any problems adjusting to the real world after you leapt straight? Like, did you have a hard time forgetting? Like you said, you were a truck driver. Yeah. And you talked about straight a lot. I talked about straight all the time. Uh-huh. With anybody that would listen to me. Uh-huh. And it was just something that I just couldn't, for whatever reason, I just couldn't put behind me. Uh-huh. And you actually were told by somebody to... I had a co-driver that I had hired, and he was with me for about three months. And he said, do me a favor, the next co-driver you hire, don't tell them about straight. Mm -hmm. Because apparently I talked about it all the time. And he just thought it would be a better thing for me to do to just not talk about it anymore and move on in life. Uh Uh-huh. And that, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and you probably didn't even realize you were right. talking about it all the time because no. that was your life. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and then, oh, there was another thing you told me, like, remember how we would say in group, I can relate to you because. Right. Were you still doing that after straight? Yes. What happened? Um, I would be talking to somebody and they would talk about something that happened during their day that they were dealing with, you know, a relationship or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, oh, I know what that's like. And then I would start talking about what happened to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so it always came back to talking about me uh-huh. and talking about my time and straight and stuff. And I just couldn't get past that. Even to this day, I have a hard time not doing that. People do not like that. No. But the thing is, we were actually taught in straight that's how you were supposed to be. Right. I yeah. mean, you had to do that all the yeah, time, right? We were, well, if you think about it, from the day we came into the program to the day we left out of the Seven Step Society, we were constantly told, talk about yourself. Yes. Talk about yourself. Because if you started on this tangent of talking about somebody else, they would do one of these things where everybody was pointing, pointing at themselves, to themselves, right? which was a sign to say, relate to yourself. Don't talk about anybody else. Well, it was also and when so, you stood up to give feedback. 
Right. That's when you would literally say, I can relate to you because, right. and then it became then, about you. Right. This is how I dealt with what you're going through. Right. Right. And and, and was, I do it too. So I right. know exactly what and you mean. And it was a daily thing for months and months and months. And if for some people they were there for 18 months or more, it's even worse, I'm sure. Right. Right. And, and like I said, I still do it too. And I know other survivors talk about it. It's kind of like a big thing with right. us that yeah. we all, we all seem to annoy everybody because we do that. Right. And it's not that it's about us. We don't think that at all. Right. It's, that's what was, we were trained to do that right. and we can't turn it off. Right. Cause I it's, it's there, ingrained. I, yeah. I wish there was a switch I could turn off and never uh -huh. do it again, but yeah, exactly. Um, do you think you made lasting friendships in straight? I thought I did initially. Uh -huh. I thought these were going to be people that I was going to be spending the rest of my life being friends with. Uh huh. And that turned out not to be the case. Why is that? Do you think? Um, I think some people, they, it's it's going to sound really weird, but I think that some people also get tired of hearing about straight from other people. Okay. And so that period of time that we were in straight and making these friendships were just there to get us through. And okay. And once we got out, we weren't needed anymore. And so they would go off on their own and do their own thing with other people. Do you think it could also be because straight was not fun and maybe you just didn't want to think about like the reminder? Yeah. Even though it's not personal, right. it's just... Yeah. That's the only thing that, in most cases, the only thing I have in common with people from straight was the fact that we were in straight. Exactly. Right. There's no other common denominator there. Right. Right. Um, now, you did say that in straight, you, you've been sober ever since straight, so that's going on 40 years. Yeah. But you also said it, you don't give straight credit no. for your sobriety. Why is that? No. Back on fourth phase, um, I had made, I, th something happened where I was sitting in a group one night just before the, the night wrapped, and a question popped in my mind. Uh -huh. And it was, if the doors of straight were to close tomorrow, would you stay sober or would you go back and eventually start uh -huh. drinking again or smoking pot again? Right. This isn't a question that I took lightly in my mind at that point. Okay. And I wanted to take time to think about it, think about both sides of if I did relapse, what would I do? If I didn't, what would I do? And I spent that entire evening wrap pondering that question uh -huh. to the point where I wasn't motivating. I wasn't involved in that night wrap. And I was on fourth phase. And there was literally a staff member sitting less than 10 feet away from me that saw that I wasn't motivating during this wrap. Fortunately, this staff member recognized that I was going through something and left me alone. Which is unusual. Yeah. Right. I talked to him. I had a chance to talk to him several years later, and he said, I remember that night. And huh. he said, I knew you were going through a breakthrough moment of sorts, and so I just let you go and just huh. let you be. At the end of that wrap, I had determined that no matter what, one day at a time for the rest of my life, I'm going to stay sober. And that was the end of it. I literally could have pulled myself out of that program and withdrawn, and I have no question in my mind I would still be sober. Because you your conviction was that strong. Right. But I was also smart enough to know not to take this home to my parents and say, hey, I can pull myself tonight because I don't need to go back because I've made this commitment because I would have wound up right back on front row on, on first phase again. And so. we're definitely going to go into how that happened later yeah, on because so, right. that was a very big deal. Yeah. Um, so congratulations. That's great that you've been sober. It is Thanks. a really big deal. So that's yeah. awesome. Um, for those of us that really did have issues, then there was some in there yeah. that really did have issues. You were Absolutely, one of them. Yeah. So I'm glad that... It, I'm glad you're sober. That's good. Right. Um, 
There's another thing that affected you long-term. In straight, you could describe what was it like to go to the bathroom, and then how did it affect you years? And yeah. I know that sounds crazy to people right. like, what? Yeah, right. But yeah, go ahead. We were watched. Like I said, if you're on first phase, you were watched 24 hours a day. If you had to move your bowels, you sat in a stall, and that stall door didn't get closed. There was an old comer standing there literally watching you go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And the same thing at the urinal. They were standing right behind you, not even two feet away from you, mm -hmm. to make sure that you weren't going to try to do anything to yourself or somebody else. And uh, Which was the excuse, but right, whatever. Right. <laughs> and as a direct result of that, I developed a bashful bladder. I had to really calm myself down to before I could go. And if I'm in a crowded situation, I'm in a crowded bathroom, like at a concert or a ball game or whatever, and there's a lot of people in the bathroom, I have to go through that to even go to the bathroom. That or I'll just leave and come back when it's not as crowded. But it still affects me now. So 40 years later, being watched in the bathroom yep. still affects you. Yes. And a lot of people don't understand. I mean, it was extremely embarrassing. Uh, I mean, just think about do yeah. you, who wants to be watched when you're doing that. There's right. a reason there's doors closed. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah it, that was actually very traumatic for a lot of us. Yeah. So um, what about other ways um, that you were affected long term? Like I know you mentioned the startle response because yeah. of that uh, alarm clock. Mm -hmm. um, what happens if somebody tries to accidentally touch your belt loop? Um, this actually happened several years ago when I was still married. Uh huh. And as I was coming down the steps, my wife grabbed me by the belt loop, and I almost turned around and hit her because <laughs> it was that bad. Right. Because I didn't want that. It just taught me, took me right back to first phase again. And oh yeah. Being led around by the belt loop, and I didn't like it. And I, I did. I almost hit my wife. And that's not something you thought about. It was no, a reaction. It was a reaction. Right. Yeah. Again, I mean, that's well over 30 years after, and it's still yeah. affecting you. Yeah. Um, now, when you started talking to other survivors, you said it did trigger some nightmares. Mm -hmm. But I thought what was really interesting is the nightmare that ended all the nightmares. Right. I had a, a dream that I was in the Kids Helping Kids program, which was a, a spinoff of Straight that was in the same building after the Cincinnati Straight closed. Uh-huh. And I was on front row in this program. And at some point during the dream, I just said, I don't want to be here anymore. And I stood up and I walked out the door. And then as soon as I walked out the door, I woke up and I haven't had a dream about straight since. And that is, I think that's really significant because yeah. I've heard a lot of survivors talk about nightmares. It's why I wanted to bring it up. And one of the things that comes up repeatedly in the nightmares, it's about being stuck in there and you can't escape. Right. I've actually had that dream before yeah. and it's terrifying. So the fact that you actually had the dream that you could get up off that front row and walk out the door yeah. was significant. Right. That was a life changing dream. Exactly. Right. Right. So... It's not a negative. I mean, yeah, the nightmares are negative, but right. I like that it shows how you, how far you had come right. to that point. Yeah. Um, what about PTSD? Do you have it? Um, I was, I believe I was diagnosed in 2018 with it. Okay. So only a couple of years ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. Do you know about other former straight clients that have killed themselves? I do. There do, were, you, do you know how many? Just I you personally know. I, I just know, I remember the one. Okay. Um, um, and sure you actually remembered him, right? Oh, yeah. We were 
we were sort of friends. Uh-huh. We weren't really super close, but right. we knew each other. As a matter of fact, when I was an officer and I left, he became my replacement. Okay, okay, so. okay. And the reason I mentioned suicidal is this does come up later on when we talk, mm-hmm. um, and that was an issue with a lot of people, so right. yeah. I just want to mention it. It's a foreshadowing. We will definitely be talking more about that. Yeah. Um, what about other problems you have that were caused by straight that still affect you right now? Um, basically just talking about myself all the time. What about, um, do you feel invisible or? Yeah, there's times that I will be in a room full of people and I feel like nobody even sees me. Uh-huh. And what about, um, so. you said something about never feeling like you're good enough? Mm-hmm. Do you think um, that goes back to straight? I do, because we were constantly told we were not good enough. Uh-huh. We were pieces of trash. Uh-huh. And the, again, like I said earlier and the other one was that we were torn down, but they didn't get the part of building us back up right. Uh-huh. And, um, and so, what about fearing that you're always doing something wrong? That is a huge thing. Huge. If, I, if I'm in a situation and somebody does something, then I think it's something that I'm doing wrong. Okay. It's, they're, they're reacting to me, but they're not going to tell me that they're doing it, but it's my fault. Well, and straight, everything that, was your fault. Right. Even if you did nothing wrong, it was your fault, as we yeah. talked about earlier, the right. false accusations. So yeah. that seems like I just, a very... I, several weeks ago, I had a, a thought that I had never had before. Uh-huh. I walked into a room of people that knew me, mm-hmm. but nobody said anything to me. Again, the, the feeling invisible part. Mm-hmm. And later, I had the thought that I just walked into a room full of strangers that I've known for years. Mm-hmm. And that still happens now. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of ways that all of us are affected. But yeah. um, And it's amazing how it really stuck with us. And well, you know about it. You know that you do it. But right. that doesn't stop the way that you react to these things. Right. right? Yeah. Um, now, like we talked about before, you actually had a real problem. And you know some kids out there now really do need help. What would you tell a parent looking for a place, what kind of advice would you give them? They need to do a lot of research. And why is on that? On that facility to make sure that it's going to be a good fit for the child uh-huh. and for the parents. And the biggest question that I would always want them to ask is, do I have access to talk to my child anytime I want? Uh-huh. And if the answer to that is no, then don't put them there. Um. Because I, I think that... It, a parent should always have be able to get in touch with their child for any reason. Right, right. Even just to hear their voice and know that they're okay. Uh-huh. So. One of the reasons why I asked you this is because there's, there's still a lot of bad places out there. Yeah. And that's why you said research. Right. Because there are bad places. But you also, um, there's obvious safety reasons. Like a parent needs to be able to find out if something's wrong from their child. But you mentioned another reason that you thought it was important to be able to have contact, maybe get letters or yeah. what was that? Um, when I was down at St. Pete on first phase, just not having that contact or hearing from my mom and dad, except on Mondays and Fridays. And then that, then it was that clear across the room uh-huh. Uh-huh. contact with them. And all they could say was love you. Mm-hmm. All I could say to them was I love you. And they could talk about how things were going and, and what they expected of me. But I could say nothing more than I love you. Right. Love your mom, love your dad. And that was all I could say. So it wasn't real contact. No. And 
the biggest thing that would have made a huge difference if I was able to get a letter or a card from them, just letting them know that they're thinking about me, they're praying for me, we're here for you, we believe in you. Encouragement. Some kind of encouragement, because I wasn't getting that encouragement throughout the day anyway. But so, straight never did that. Didn't they always no. make it sound like your parents hated you and yeah. didn't want you? Yeah, and... your parents don't want you back until you're straight, so. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yep, so, pretty sad. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons context important, but that's just one of them. Um, yeah. You said you have a really big regret. Your biggest one about straight. My, and yeah, my ahead. biggest regret from the whole time, from the time that I was in the program day one to the day I left staff. And that was the day that I saw my girlfriend at the football game. Uh-huh. And not being able to tell her, wait for me. Why didn't you? Because at that time, my dad was there with me, mm -hmm. and I thought if we had any kind of contact like that, then it would be reported back to staff that, hey, this is what Don said to his girlfriend, and I think you need to look into it. Mm -hmm. And there would have been consequences for that. And I would have been started over. More than, more than likely, I would have been started over for saying something like that to her. People listening won't understand this, but why would you get started over? Because they thought it was, I was avoiding myself that I wasn't dealing with my drug problem and that somebody else was taking a higher priority in my life than me. And we weren't allowed to talk to people from our right. quote unquote past right. at all. No, we weren't allowed to talk to any of our druggy friends. If they came up to us, then we could deal with that and tell them that we were straight and we were doing good, but then make it short and sweet. Right. But as far as getting together later or having any kind of real conversation, that was prohibited. We weren't right. allowed to do that. And so I was terrified that if I had said something to her like that, that I was going to get in trouble. Mm -hmm. Because what turned out to be, when I went back to the building and said, hey, I ran into my girlfriend, they were like, who cares? Nobody cared. But if you had done what you said, you right. would have gotten, then I would have gotten, gotten in trouble. In trouble. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> yeah, everything was so arbitrary so, and straight. Yeah. You never knew when you were going to get in trouble. I'm convinced that if I had told her, wait for me, we would be together today. I have no doubt about that in my mind. So do you think you, it's like an issue left hanging that you yeah. never got closure? Yeah, there's no closure on it at all. Because you never even got to say anything? Yeah. Because you just had to bolt and like, yeah. I can't talk to you. <laughs> yeah. the, the fear and paranoia of being getting in trouble took over uh -huh. at that moment. So. Yeah, yeah. And I know that happened to a lot of us. We couldn't explain or talk to the people from our past yeah. because straight said they were all bad no matter what. Right. So unlike most of us, you actually stayed with straight after you seven stepped and you became a seven step officer, right? Yep. How long were you an officer? Seven months total. Okay. Three months I had another person with me that was the president of the seven step society. And then after her term was up, then I took over as president for the last I was supposed to only be there for three more months, but it turned out to be seven because of some mess up there with who replaced me. Okay. So, All right. What was the role of the officer? What What was your job? The officers basically were to lead the wraps on Tuesdays and Saturdays. Okay. And um, any kind of problems that they had, they could come to me. Okay. And I could help them through whatever it is. I ran into a druggy friend or mm -hmm. I had this, you know, this temptation of going back or whatever. And... So I was a sounding board for them to talk to. Okay. And I could give feedback or whatever. I was also responsible for writing in an ops book 
well, just like being on fifth phase okay. and how certain seven steppers were doing. Okay, right. And then um, what would happen if a seven stepper broke a rule? Um, they were confronted by the seven step society, uh -huh. which didn't happen a whole lot. But right. When it did, it was, it was bad. Uh -huh. And then there could be consequences that an officer could hand out. Like what? Like a behind the group refresher. Uh-huh. Minimum, I think, was three days. Okay. So they had to come into night wrap for three days in a row and do and participate in that wrap. Would, would there, I mean, I don't know if it happened when you were there, but are you aware of that sometimes seven-steppers were forced to go back and start all over in the group? I knew if they had relapsed, uh -huh. if they had gone back to drugs, they were put back on their program day one. Day one, start all over. Yeah. They called those yeah. refreshers, too. They right. were just much longer. Yeah, they were, it was a mini program or a refresher. Yeah, mini program. That's right. Uh, the one thing that always bothered me was that if a junior or senior staff member relapsed, not only did the Seven Steps Society not hear about it, the officers weren't even told about it. Huh. And they were just quietly whisked off to another program, and they just disappeared from their... Poof, gone. Yeah, gone. Well, so, that's how a lot of things happen in the street. Yeah. Poof, gone, and you never knew yeah. where somebody went. But it was just like that was the mentality that they, they had about staff. They didn't want anybody to know that staff screws up too because they were afraid that that's going to affect the, confident, the, the confidence that another child could have. It's like, well, if he couldn't make it, then what chance do I have of staying sober? Right, right. So I sort of understood it in a way, but the way that they did it with the Seven Step Society, there was no reason why the Seven Step Society shouldn't have known that you know, junior so-and-so or senior staff member so-and-so messed up and he's down in St. Pete now or wherever. Uh-huh. You know, there's no reason for that. Um, did it ever happen that seven-steppers were kind of banished from seven-step society, so to speak, um, or kicked out? Not when I was an officer, but I had heard that if you had relapsed and refused to go back into the program, you were not allowed to associate with them at all. Yeah, they would actually announce it in yeah. the in the rap. In the raps. Yeah. So and so, how do they say it? Um, they're in bad standing. You can't talk right. to them anymore. So, I mean, they were literally ordered to never right. speak to that person yeah. ever again. And that happened on the program too. That if somebody copped out and left, or pulled themselves out of the program, or were pulled out of the program, their parents did it. You couldn't talk to them. Nope. You were completely banished. And God help you if you did. Oh yeah. Because there'd be another you grounds to with anybody. right. You could get set back for talking to them. Yeah. Do you know why that was? I mean, I mean, just off the top of your head. Um, I don't really. I think that they thought that they would be a bad influence, that this person is out now and they're not following the rules. It sounds cultish, though. Yeah, it's I very mean, cultish. It's 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 a cult behavior. Uh-huh. Because why would... I? Well, cults typically control information. Yeah. They don't want you to hear things that are negative or bad. Right. So that's kind yeah. of like I couldn't talk to my grandmother. Right. My grandmother because she didn't like I was in the street. Right. That's my grandma. Yeah. And anybody, and if I had pulled myself out of the program, my parents were ordered to not let me back in the house. Disown him and let him do what he wants to do, but mm -hmm. he's not going to be a part of your life anymore either. Right. Which I thought that's really twisted because... They were straight was supposed to be all about building up a family uh -huh, unit. Exactly. But instead, they tore them apart in those situations. And they tore up friendships too by yeah. saying, "Nope, you can't yeah. talk to him anymore." Yeah. And and this is like, these are kids that are out of the program, like right. seven steppers. We're talking about people that right. actually successfully completed the program, and they're yep. still telling them who they can talk to right. and who they can't. Yeah. Which of course is crazy. So anyway, um, 
This is actually going to be a short segment. We're going to take another break because the reason okay. we're going to come back and start talking about staff and it's a big topic. So we're just going to separate that. Okay. So taking a break.